and welcome to the first official episode of Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. Hi, Rabia. Hi, hi, Ellen. How are you? You look beautiful today. You look amazing, too. You're so beautiful. (laughs) I am so happy. Hopefully some people stuck around after our intro episode and they know we're actually going to talk about true crime and not just talk about, you know, our favorite colors and us taking a trip to Pakistan. Yeah. And our secret crushes. Yeah. And your lips, of course. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, we are going to dive right in now. As we said in our intro episode, Robbie and I wanted to have a little episode where we solve the case before we invite our guests onto the episode. And Robbie said to me, what case do you want to do? And it was probably the easiest conversation we've had thus far. I think it took like two text messages and we're like, in, we're in, it's done. So we're going to be talking about the murder of Lacey Peterson. So why was this so easy for us to decide, do you think? I think because we are decades out from this case, right, when it actually took place in 2002. And... I all of us were riveted by it, right? Like it it just triggered this incredibly deep emotional response across the country. We all were part of the mob and you know, I look back at that and I am deeply ashamed. That was the time well before like serial and like this turn in true crime. I was still in law school by the way. Um when we started realizing that, oh, things can go wrong and everything you hear in the media is not always right. And so all these years later, like we have like evidence coming forward that actually existed then, but was drowned out and nobody heard it or listened to it. um, That made me realize that this is a very problematic conviction. It really is. And now we made a conscious decision to today. We're really, we're going to talk about this case, but we're really going to talk in fact. Now, I, of course, am a lawyer and Rabia is too. But I think that's really, really important because chances are everyone who's listening is probably well acquainted with this case, you know, unless you're new to the earth. But we're going to... Or we're born after 2002, which is possible. Sure. But (laughs) like you said, there are some facts that people don't know. Some of it might be some reminders and some of it, you know, might be new information. But we're really going to focus on the facts of the case. And I think we all understand the why everyone is so drawn to this case. I want to ask you what you remember of that time. First of all, where were you in your life in that moment? I told you I was in law school. I was in San Francisco. I'm from the Bay Area. (gasps) You were right there. Yeah. And after I graduated college, I went back and worked on a show there. You could not go to a supermarket. You could not turn on the TV without Nancy Grace barking in your face at any moment. So I was deeply embedded and invested in this case and the outcome for that matter. And the thing is, like, this also came... Not too long after the O.J. Simpson chase that riveted us, the trial that was like every single day and every spectacle was televised. And at that point, the media knew like when you get a case like that, that you this is big ratings. It's big business. It's big viewership. This case was a media circus from the first day. And it was deliberately so because the police wanted it like that. And when you do that, you do not have a defendant who begins a trial with a presumption of innocence. It's impossible. It's impossible. But should we talk about like kind of set up like the, the broad view of like, kind of like, what happened? Yeah. What I would love everyone to do today, if possible, is just kind of listen with new ears. I think that's really important because in our research, you'll hear a lot of 
probably's, a lot of may have been's, a lot of it's assumed. And I guess my big question in reinvestigating and diving into this case again is do probably's and maybe's and may have been measure up to the standard of reasonable doubt beyond a reasonable doubt right that's what beyond we, a reason right yeah right, beyond right, right. a reasonable what law doubt. school did you and go to i'm sorry i just it was the it's it's a small academy in northern ireland the law academy I, of oh, cool. the law yeah so yeah it's it's prestigious they did a great job thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's let's just dive in with our overview yeah Okay, so um, I can set this up. So uh, it is Christmas Eve, 2002, December 24, 2002. So it's a sleepy little news night. Not a lot's going on. Everybody's home, but it's in the daytime. And Lacey and Scott Peterson are a married couple, young, beautiful couple. They live in Modesto, California. And basically that day, Scott Peterson says, you know, they've got the day off in the evening. They're going to have dinner with his in-laws, Lacey's parents. So he decides to go on a fishing trip and he's just got a new little aluminum boat nothing fancy like this tiny little dingy thingy and Lacey has her plans for the day and when he gets home she's gone and she's eight months pregnant by the way that's also very very important and I think that's also why people were so like I mean there are so many things that like drew people to the case right she's young she's pretty she's a young white woman he also is like a young attractive guy but it's like oh he's probably the psychopath and then she's pregnant so it's like on christmas eve the virgin mary herself is being attacked right like there's like this kind of yeah and so she she disappears they don't know what happened but really from the get-go the police are looking at the husband as is like normal police procedure and and the body um her body and her son's body are found like three and a half months later in like the san francisco bay area basically in the water and remember he had been fishing so that's those are like the big kind of facts of the case and then he's arrested and faces a trial i don't like sweeping statements but i'm gonna say a trial almost like we've never seen before in terms of media frenzy yeah i mean oj oj was pretty up there but but you know oj proved that this is like sellable stuff people want this somehow people who have jobs still manage to watch that trial every single day Absolutely. The 24 hour news cycle, remember, is a thing in our life. It wasn't always a thing. It was pretty new then. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the overview of the case. That is the Wikipedia really fast elevator pitch of this case. So to understand where this all started, we do know that Lacey went missing on Christmas Eve, but to actually understand the intricacies of kind of this very specific timeline, we have to go back to December 23rd. The reason we go back is not so much because it helps kind of prove Scott's defense to a certain extent, and I'll get into why. So on the 23rd, Lacey has a sister named Amy who has a hair salon, and they go over there and she gives Scott a haircut. And she shows Lacey, like, how to curl her hair with a curling iron so it flips up so she looks cute for Christmas. And, you know, they just hang out. And Amy tells the police on the day that she disappears that when her sister came to visit her, she was wearing tan pants and a black blouse that had tiny flowers on it. So she remembers exactly what her sister's wearing. And the next day when Lacey is reported missing and the police start searching the house, they find that exact outfit, like, in like so Lacey is not dressed in the same clothing that she was when like you know she clearly has gotten out of those clothes at some point and the reason that's important because the police's entire theory is this okay that Scott killed Lacey on the night of the 23rd not on the 24th but he killed on the night of the 23rd like they came back from the hair salon maybe they had dinner maybe they didn't He, he says they had dinner and watched some tv and went to bed um but that he killed her on that night that he wrapped her in a tarp 
stuck her in, in the middle of the night on the back of his truck so nobody in the neighborhood could see. If you know anything about this case, you have definitely seen footage. These are houses right next to each other. We're not talking about mm-hmm. acres between. They're like right next to each other. And the police stuck with this theory. Um, the state stuck with it throughout the trial because they would not have been able to explain that he killed her on the 24th because there would have been no time to get her into the truck. There were too many people around. So they had to stick with that. But Scott says, we came home, she changed, got into her PJs. You know, this is what she was wearing. Um, they actually found her PJs also that she'd been wearing the night before because he said that she got up the next day and showered right. and changed again. They found the PJs that he said. So it's those things kind of track with what he's saying. And that's why that's important to know that either, like if he had actually killed her that night, that means he killed her after she changed. The point is, that's one more detail of his story that matches up to like what other people are saying too. So Scott had mentioned to Lacey's sister, Amy, that night, you know, casual conversation. He was going to go golfing the next day, pick up gift baskets. And they actually invited Amy over that night. And she had plans. They were just like, we're just going to order pizzas and, you know, watch football. So the idea that the police were going with was that he killed her. Scott also had a warehouse about nine minutes from their home, yep. um, and he kept the boat there, and he had a computer there. Now, something to note with this theory that this is how he did it, his truck did not fit in the warehouse. So he would have had to, whatever their theory is, he would have had to have done this all outside. But we know that Lacey called her mom on the night of the 23rd at 8.30, and that was the last conversation, sadly, that Sharon had with her daughter. There are so many things that discredit this 23rd murder that happened. Yeah, it's very hard for the police to make the argument that he killed her on the 23rd. However, they're kind of stuck in a way, because yeah. they're like, well, if he killed her on the 20th, and the 24th is nearly impossible because so many people saw her. But I think let's go through what Scott says he did that morning yep. and, and what him and Lacey did that morning. I think that's important to do. So Scott said that Lacey woke up at about 7 a.m. and she put those pajama pants. She was wearing these like blue pajama pants that were actually his because mm-hmm. probably, you know, her eight month belly was wanted something not tight on her or something. She put them in the hamper and we know that to be true because they found the pajamas when they searched the home. And we know that Lacey logged onto her computer at 8.40 in the morning, and she had shopped for a red scarf and a sunflower umbrella, and she logged off at 8.45. So well, well let's that, hold on a second. So yeah. when, the, when the police realized that somebody had been on the home computer at 8.40 a.m., they're like, oh, that had to be Scott because Lacey's dead as far as they're concerned, sure. right? But making the argument that Scott was with his wife's dead body in his truck was shopping for a red gap scarf and a sunflower umbrella stand – I mean, what a stretch, right? Oh, but what the state will argue, and they did argue, that this is how clever he is. He's making it look like she's still alive, right? He's like creating all these little things that, oh, that was Lacey doing it. But Lacey yeah. was obsessed with sunflowers. She likes sunflowers and everything. So anyhow, going on. Yeah, we're giving this dude a lot of credit for the amount of planning that he had the foresight to say, oh, let me log on this computer, do something that my, you know, silly sunflower-loving wife would do. I mean, yeah. they're throwing their shoulders out with that reach. With a dead body in your truck outside in yeah. broad daylight. Outside in broad daylight. I and mean, come on. Exactly. So Scott tells us that as the day progressed, Lacey told him that she was going to walk the dog and go to the store. She was going to make this delicious sounding French toast. I'm starving. And yeah, for their for their Christmas Eve dinner with the family. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. But something else that discredits their original 23rd story was that, remember that photo in the bathroom with the curling iron 100%. and the bench? Yep. So the house cleaner had testified that she had cleaned that house and on the 23rd and there was no curling iron. So obviously Lacey was practicing that hairdo that her sister Amy had taught her. And we see a picture of that in the evidence from when they searched the house. Right. So there, there is a clear photograph of that curling iron. It's still plugged in. It's in the bathroom. And again, if to the average person, to the reasonable mind, it would be evidence that Lacey came home and plugged it in. Now, the police could argue, well, she did it the night before, right before she was killed. She practiced. But her hair had already been curled, right, by her sister. Scott said, Scott actually, when he was interviewed, he was interviewed that same night. He said, yeah, this morning she was curling her hair. She was doing all these things. He, he said that he remembered looking, watching her and thinking she looked so cute when she did it in the morning. Um, and they found, like, the evidence to back it up. But like I said, the prosecutor was like, well, yeah, because he set that up, too. Yeah, truly, they're giving this man genius level credit for the planning of this murder happening the way Listen, they said it I happened. could come. I have straight hair down to almost my waist. If I could get a full perm and my husband would notice, I don't know what they're talking about. There's no way <laughs> I could show up with like blonde curls and my husband would have no idea that I did. That. You know what I mean? Like it. <laughs> That kind of attention to detail requires a woman. <laughs> Absolutely. All in favor of Rabia going blonde, raise your hand. I, you could pull off anything, honestly. <laughs> All right. So Scott was actually seen sometime between 9.20 and 9.40 a.m. because a neighbor was like, they were out in the yard and they saw Scott loading up the back of his truck with three pool umbrellas. He told the police, he already told, he had told the police that night that, yeah, I was going to store them in the warehouse because it's December. They don't need the pool umbrellas. Right. They should have been long gone anyways. So the, the neighbor said good morning. They said good morning to each other. And then he went back in the house. And when he went back, he said that Martha Stewart was on and that like Lacey was like, I'm going to mop. So, I mean, and these are all details he gave the police. And when the police got to the house, it seemed like everything was adding up. She asked him to fill up the, a bucket for her so she could mop up for the day. And he did fill it up and left it for her. And, and they found that when they got back. Right. And the important thing about the Martha Stewart thing is, and he says this in his initial interrogation, we see it, you know, he said they were talking about something about cookies and meringue. Yeah, and, he specifically says meringue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sure enough, that segment came on at 948 and it was Martha Stewart yeah. talking about making meringue cookies. Yeah. So we know now that he's definitely at the house still at 948 a.m., I mean, because look, he's telling the story, this, the police's timeline that same night. It's not like he has time to later go back and be like, what was on TV? Let me see if I can find a rerun. This is not like the time when we could find everything online, right? Like, so Why? he tells the police this. And, the, you know, this is one of the moments during the trial, actually, that the jury was like, oh, the prosecution is a hot mess. Because the prosecutor said in his opening arguments, just put it out there. Martha Stewart show never mentioned meringue that day. And then the defense counsel, Garagos, he pulls up the clip where it shows it and it aired exactly 948. So once again, either Scott was actually at the house at 948 AM watching this. If he was, he was watching it on his own because he mm -hmm. likes to watch Martha Stewart while his wife's dead body is in the truck. Or yeah. he is once again, the state will argue, setting up this entire premise to make it look like Lacey was still alive. Right. I did love that Garagos moment where he was like, oh, do you want to fuck around? Let's find out because I got here's receipts. the segment. Yeah. Oh, I love, you know, I love a receipt. Yeah. 
So then shortly after this Martha Stewart segment, Scott leaves to go to his warehouse, like I mentioned, which was He's got to get the boat. He's got to go fishing. He's got to get the boat. But he now changed his f- mind now, right? So this is the thing, right? Like he, oh, right. he was going to yes, go golfing. Yes. Why does he decide to go fishing? Because it was too cold to go golfing. And, and it was. Again, being from the Bay Area, uh, it is, the, you know, my favorite quote about the Bay Area from Mark Twain is the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. <laughs> but it is cold when in the winter. When you're from the South, you, yeah. But let yeah, me ask you, you this, think, though. Are you yeah. a golfer or a fisher? No, I don't do things that involve standing around and chasing balls because mm. I like the, you know, yeah, no. You like and them chasing fishing, you. Yeah, I yeah. mean, fish. you're just going to sit there and you're going to, no, I have too many things to do, like scrolling TikTok and yes. getting my law education through you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. When I first heard that and he said it was too cold, or at least that's what was out in the media, I, you know, that he said it was too cold, so he changed his mind, and that was highly suspicious. Um, so the police are like, oh, that's because he had a body to dump. But I, my thing is, like, if it's too cold to golf, isn't it too cold to be on the water? Here's the thing. With golfing, this, this I have thought about this. Number one, with golfing, I would imagine the wind would be annoying with that little ball, you know, swinging mm-hmm. around. That probably isn't very much fun. But also, when you fish, you could probably cuddle up in a coat mm-hmm. and have a nice cocoa, and it's just a little chill. Well, whereas you're golfing and it's cold, you can't wear a jacket. You got to swing that little putter thing. What's it called? The little putter, the little swingy thing. <laughs> the stick. Yeah, the stick. The, <laughs> the oh club. God, we're the gonna, club. It's called a club. <laughs> we're gonna get. We're gonna get. We're gonna get letters. But you know, whereas you go on a boat, you are just kind of sitting there, maybe cuddling in a blanket or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but that is a really, really fair question. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. Why is it not suspicious, Ellen? Tell us why. Well, it's not suspicious because Lacey's stepdad, Ron Gransky, also went on a solo fishing trip that morning. Right. I think the family has kind of a thing. This is like a thing they do. And Scott had recently gotten this boat. That day was the very first day he took it out on the water. And yes, listen, it is risky to be like, I'm just going to try this out and see if it works for dumping the body, right? And can we talk for a moment for like what Scott does? Scott is a fertilizer salesman. Okay. So Mm -hmm. this is a warehouse is where he does his business out of. His work involves him routinely driving to remote farmland, right? Like with just sprawling expanse of like woods and just fields where he's familiar with that territory versus like a boat on a, in a, on a, in the morning and not even at night, but in broad daylight saying, I'm going to, this is how I'm going to get rid of this body. Like it's a ridiculous theory because it didn't happen. But anyhow, let's keep going. (laughs) There's a very casual timeline to this morning because we know he checked his voicemail at 10.08. We know that Scott was on his computer at the warehouse between 10.30 and 10.56 and it was benign stuff. Checking emails, sending emails and he looked up that instruction manual for that woodworking tool that he had recently purchased. I mean He had just gotten this tool and then he told the police that he's like he looked it up the, uh, the instructions and then he actually put the tool together and when the police looked into the to the forensic search of his computer, they in fact found the instructions and they found the tool put together. Now, again, this is according to them, he's doing all this stuff with the wife's body in the truck parked outside yeah. a warehouse. 
Yeah, I would just think I have never committed or done murder, nor do I plan on it. But I would think there would be some kind of pepper in your step. There would be some kind of fire lit under your ass to do that and maybe not check your emails and diddle about with an instruction manual again. I have planned out many murders in my mind, Ellen, and and none of this is part of like (laughs) would would work. It seems like they carpeed the wrong DM because they are just throwing this out there. In Undisclosed, we, me and my colleagues who are also lawyers, just like you, brilliant, brilliant lawyer. You know, we, <laughs> we, we covered 24 cases. And when I say covered, I mean like about half a dozen of them. We did deep investigations. We spent like two, three years investigating others. We did series, but we always had all the documents. Every single one an innocence case, many of them coming to us from the Innocence Project. And what I can tell you about all of this is um, every time you think, oh, my God, like this is the most ridiculous like narrative of how this crime could have taken place. Like, you know, prosecutors will say, well, then he flew back into the state and he flew out of the state and he did it like this. And you're like, who would come up with a scheme like that? You know, the response of the state is like, yeah, well, that's why they get caught because these criminals are dumb. So, you know, like they have a ready response. Not that this is so highly improbable that no rational human being would commit a murder like this, especially if they planned it and premeditated it. But they'll say, yeah. But he's dumb. They're dumb criminals. So they'll come up with anything. I just think they're giving him boatloads of credit. Get it? Boats because he's in a boat. So back to this very specific timeline. We another important time is 1254. Right. That's when he got his boat slot ticket. So he is for sure at the Berkeley Marina at 1254. And how far is that from like because his warehouse is just a few miles from his home. But the the marina is much further away. Right. So it is GPS maps that at an hour and 36 minutes. So the timeline fits that he would have left the warehouse at 1118. Again, he got off the computer at 1056. So this is these are just facts. These are time. We have evidence. This is and nobody's disputing them. These are all like, you know, everybody stipulated to these facts. And then going back to the timeline, they, he said he was on the water for about 90 minutes. And that's calculated from the time he bought the ticket. Mm-hmm. And there were witnesses that saw him that day. Yeah. So he backed up the boat to the the dock thingy. Again, neither one of us are marina Do- people. The dock thingy. The is, dock that, thing- is that a technical term? It dock is. Dock thingy? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's in the dock thingy manual. Um <laughs> And when he launched his little boat, he actually had to like, you know, it's a marina. So there are all these boats actually docked on the sides and he has to like putter out of there slowly before he can pick up speed in open water. And some of these boats, people like actually live on the boats and there are people who are there that morning. It's also like the holidays so people are hanging out. There was one guy in particular who was not called as a defense witness, which can I just tell you, I mean, I wanted to just like... And this was a this was actually a really great defense counsel. I cannot understand a mistake of this magnitude. So there was one guy who actually was working on another boat right on that dock. His name was Yuri Feria, F-E-R-I-A. And he's been identified. The the defense interviewed him. He was like, listen, I specifically remember it's first of all, it's a memorable day because it's like you know, Christmas Eve morning, he's sure. he's on the dock, he's working on another boat and like Scott's boat just kind of goes by and he was able to look directly into Scott's little aluminum boat, mm-hmm. like directly into it. And yeah. he's like, it was empty. He's like, I saw that it was empty. So when the trial rolls around, you've got somebody, not just people who say they saw Scott like on the boat, but somebody who said they saw into the boat. Now, Yuri tells uh, Garagos, the defense counsel, that I have to go on a trip. Like I have a a trip planned and, 
you know, they, he could have worked around that, right? He could have found a way to like, he could have subpoenaed the witness, which may not as always great, you know, mess up his thing, but he maybe could have found a way for him to testify like remotely via affidavit, via video. Like there's other ways to get around that. He didn't call him at all. He said, don't worry about it. We don't need you. It makes no sense. The one person who saw the boat leaving the marina looked in and said it was empty. I mean, major, major witness. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be plenty of time to rage about the witnesses that were not questioned or not even called back. That is the first, but definitely not the last. And also something for your mental, for everybody's mental image. This is a tiny little fishing boat. Any woman who is eight months pregnant, they estimated Lacey weighed about 150 pounds and Scott's a big guy. And so mentally, just imagine, you know, a, a little, we're not talking about a big yacht or, you know, it's like, it's very, very small. And something that a lot of the other witnesses in the marina noticed was he was kind of struggling to get his boat both in and out of the water because though he had been fishing, this was a brand new boat. This was its, what do you call it? The inaugural voyage. You know, he popped a bottle of champagne. The virgin voyage. Is it called a virgin virgin voyage? voyage, yeah. Yeah. So then continuing on that call that we've all heard, you know, a million times, Hey, beautiful. I just left a message at home. Uh, 2.15. I live in Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Villa Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and uh, go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. End of message. When they checked his cell phone records, we know that he called Lacey and he called another friend and he called his parents. Now, the next important time is 325, which bank records support when he pulled over for gas. And at 352, he called Lacey again. That time he didn't leave a message. Yeah. The reason these, there's no real evidence in the fact that he pulled over for gas, but what's really important about this is, and you'll see this over and over again in innocence cases once again, is that these are things he told the police lot that night. He's never, ever deviated from his story, and they were able to verify every single thing. There's not one thing that he said that they were able to say, uh-uh-uh, that's not, except for one thing, and we'll get to her later, but, but there's not one thing that he told them about his day that they weren't able to actually verify. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. So after getting gas, he drops off his boat and then he heads home and he gets home. He's, he estimates between 4.30 to 4.45. And that's when he finds Mackenzie out in the yard. Right. Their dog, Mackenzie, had his leash around his neck. Now, we later find out about a girl. Me- you know, I thought it was a girl too, and then some, and then another one said it was a boy. I thought the name Mackenzie would be a girl. I don't know. Well, maybe it's a non-binary dog. Maybe I think that's. Maybe we should go with that. Let's go with they. Yeah. Just, okay. <laughs> now we later find out from Karen Servus, who for me is a really, really problematic witness, and how funny that her testimony was taken seriously. We later found out the dog was put back in the yard due to Karen, right? Karen is a a neighbor who lives not directly, but like lives, I think maybe kind of like diagonally from them. And according to Karen, she had been backing out of her, or she'd been leaving um, her home, backed out of the driveway, is about to drive off to go run some errands. And she saw, and she recognized Mackenzie, and she saw Mackenzie just kind of wandering around the street or the front yard with a leash on and thought that's weird. So she gets out of the car, takes Mackenzie, tries one gate to the Peterson's backyard, finds it locked, goes to the other gate, it's unlocked, and puts Mackenzie in. And 
originally, she tells police originally, really on the same day, I think it was, that she did this at 10.30 a.m. Now, this is real important, right? There's two options here. Either Lacey's alive and went took her dog for a walk, like so many people said, and she also normally did. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, that she disappeared before Karen found the dog, right? So that it puts a kind of a time, like a little bit of a an end on the time, like of when that could have happened. Or again, the police say that that was Scott leaving the dog out when he leaves for the marina just to make it look like Lacey had taken the dog out and then been abducted or something. I mean, like he's really thinking this through uh, if Scott did this. He is honestly really, really genius. So, but Karen goes back later and says, I'm sorry, it wasn't 1030, it was 1018. Another thing to note, when Scott got home, Lacey's car was in the driveway. Her purse and her keys were in the house. Guys, this is never a good sign. It's never a good sign. I mean, he was like, oh, I thought maybe her mom had picked her up because and they were like cooking together for the dinner. No woman is like, I'm not going to just I'm going to leave my purse, my phone, my everything. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't happen. I'm going to give a pass and I'm going to say maybe pregnancy brain. I'll just throw that out there. But generally, when all those things are left at home, that's not great. So. We know that Scott came home and he immediately threw his clothes in the washing machine, which people thought was really suspicious. You know, I would I would love a man who does his own laundry. So but, you know, that was really suspicious to them. We learned that he then said he took a shower. He listened to the messages and he heard his own message to Lacey, as well as a message from Ron, the stepdad, who was like, hey, solo fisherman. I'm an also a solo fisherman. Hi there. I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. But he was saying, will you guys pick up some whipped cream? So he assumed that Lacey was at their house already, maybe, you know, prepping. I mean, by this time, it was late afternoon. Well, this voicemail makes him a little bit like, wait, I thought she's already there. Why is he calling and saying, can you guys pick this up? Because sure. because so, the stepfather's like, can you and Lacey pick this up? And he's like, wait, isn't Lacey over there already? Exactly. So Scott calls at 517. He calls Ron and Sharon and is like, hey, is Lacey there? And they're like, actually, she's not. And this is where the confusion starts to mount. And at 547, Ron, Lacey's stepdad, calls the police. So in that little, in that about 30 minute time frame between when he calls the stepfather back and when the stepfather calls 911, it's like literally 30 minutes. And this is a very short time frame. Right. And the police are literally at the house by 6 p.m. And within that time, when they, when everybody in the family is like, oh no, nobody knows where Lacey is and all her stuff is here, uh, Scott actually starts going to the neighbors and knocking on doors to see if, if anybody has seen his wife. And the police get there so quickly. And look, you do an entire podcast in which you talk about people disappearing. This is really unusual, right? For the police to show up in 15 minutes. Oh, I mean, I imagine they were like, well, it's Christmas Eve, not much going on. Let's go see what's happening at this handsome couple's house. Yeah, that does not happen. And it should be said, Modesto was made out to be a really like sweet town. Modesto has a very high crime rate. Now, I grew up in Oakland and there are part pockets of Oakland that are, you know, very affluent and parts that have a very, you know, high crime rate. Modesto has a lot of meth. It has a lot of uh, sex work. So it's not a sleepy, quiet town. So the fact that they were there in such a short amount of time is quite remarkable. I mean, to me, it shows that they realize that this is this could be a serious situation because I 
I've, you know, we also, if you do a little research, you can see that um, there have been a spate of kidnappings, even murders of pregnant yeah. women, of preg- specifically pregnant women in yep. the area in like the previous year or so. And there's also a number of homes in the neighborhood have been burgled, have had, did I say burgled? I can't say. Bur- bur- you know, my, my co-host on Obsessed with Disappeared, Joey, <laughs> I can't say he that. has trouble with, trouble with that word. It's like he, the burglar, 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 burgled, 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 it's burgled. Burgled. Thank you. Yeah. I'm thinking of bulgur. I love bulgur. It's delicious. Okay. So yeah, no, definitely. They're like, this is like no laughing matter. We need to get their ASAP. It's none, none of this looks good to us. And so I'm guessing it's because they know that there's like, like, this is, this is not a neighborhood in which like some, if something like this happens, they got to pay attention. So anyhow, they, they immediately go into the house and, and look around and Scott's like, come on in. Yeah. Which also, Scott's, you know, come in, take some pictures, yeah. you know, she, she was supposed to be making French toast. I don't know where that is, but you know, he 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 seemingly was like, come and help me figure this out, right? One thing I want to point out about this very tight timeline here, 517, okay, Scott, and we know, we know who's the marina, the whole timeline checks out, he's getting gas at a certain time, we know what time he's going to be home, it's going to be around 5 o'clock, right? He doesn't have the boat, so he dropped it off, that's where they find it in the warehouse. Between five, So between 5 and 6 p.m., he has one, like, if he's a murderer who has murdered mm-hmm. somebody and needs to clean yeah. up, he has one hour to get his story straight, to clean yep. up all the evidence, and in most cases, like in the Chris Watts case, and in many other cases, where you have somebody who's trying to, like, who actually has committed a murder, they are going to delay and delay and delay as much as they can reporting that person they killed is missing. They don't want people on this. They're not going to want to alert the neighbors and the parents and the police and come into my house. They're going to be like, oh, what? No, I thought she was at your place and just leave it alone or call the, like if the family calls that night. I mean, there's so many ways I can think of that he could have gotten around it. The family could have called, like if it didn't show up, the family could have been like, where are you? And he could have been like, oh, well, Lacey and I had a fight. This happens all the time. Men, all the time they'll say, like perpetrators will say, we had a fight and she just left. She just left and I don't know what happened. It is such a common story. And remember, so many correlations were drawn between Chris Watts and Scott Peterson, so I I feel like it's okay. But remember, Chris wasn't the one who was curious as to where Shanann was. It was her down bitch friend. Again, the casual nature of the day would, we have to believe that he would be some kind of insane mastermind to think that he could just go get gas, say hello to the neighbor. It really doesn't And literally up. leave a body in a tr- in an open truck bed out in the street all night. I want to say that the obviously the police start looking for her. They can't find her. But we know that they're looking at him immediately. First of all, if you watch the interview tape from that night, it becomes pretty apparent that they're like focused on him. They're like, you're the last person who saw her. But also by the fact that this, this is December 24th, by the 28th, they've got police uh, units on the marina, which is where they know he was because he had proven it to them. And that night in the interview, he gave them the boat, like the ticket and said, I was there. They found that suspicious. But they also found it suspicious that he didn't give them a receipt for the gas, which is like, come right. on. So you know, when you decide somebody's a suspect, I've seen this tunnel vision happens in every innocence case. Everything that person does is suspicious. Receipt, suspicious. No receipt, suspicious. Anyhow, they began searching the marina, and I'm talking about a hell of a search. I mean, they started searching on December 30th because they really do believe that he has dumped her body. And the other thing they do, which is, I mean, they're setting him up just completely. There's no way this guy can win. They tell the world that this is what Scott Peterson did. They told the world his alibi. 
They told them where he was. At press conferences. That is so important. And we'll talk more about this media circus that surrounded this case. Rabia, what do I say to you every single day? Where do I get my lips done? What's the second thing I say to you every single day? What's my skincare routine? Listen, if you are cursed with sitting across from a podcast partner that has perfectly flawless skin, you can listen to me now. Because I love skincare, but I do have to be honest, I do sometimes get overwhelmed by all of the products out there. And if you're like me, I'm, I used to be that person who would buy anything that I saw advertised and I would be like, yes, that's it. That's going to be the perfect solution. Oh, yeah. I got closets and closets full of stuff that never worked. But then I found Apostrophe. So Apostrophe is an online platform and it connects you with an expert dermatology team to get custom acne treatment for your unique skin. I did it. It's super easy and it's online. And you take a bunch of pictures at every angle and you literally point to what you want them to help you with. So I'll be honest, I had never, I've never been to a dermatologist before, but this dermatology appointment, like this whole process was so easy, so convenient. I swear to God, it took just a couple of days and I was done. Right. It's an easy online consultation and it's about your skin and your goals. Also your medical history. And then after you take those pictures, then a board certified dermatologist will create your first customized treatment plan. I got to tell you, it felt really good to get that box in the mail. Look, Apostrophe offers access to treatments for all kinds of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne. Listen, a lot of us, I didn't have acne as a kid, but as an adult, I'm like, what the hell is that growing on my face? And some people, you know, you got some back acne, some chest acne, and some butt acne. Apostrophe treats breakouts from head to toe. And that's the thing. Our skin is the first thing people notice. And it can really, really affect your self-esteem. So Apostrophe is there to try and address all of those needs. So we have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash solve the case when you use our code solve the case. That is a saving of $15. The code's only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash solve the case and click the begin visit, then use our code solve the case to sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Get better skin today. But I mean, you're so right. That is something people need to remember. Now, remember, he was interrogated. So they went to the house, but then he was properly interrogated midnight that night. I mean, he went again, you know, to your point, he had no time to come up with any story. I'll make a little distinction, though, between an interrogation and an interview. And the way I look, an interview is like voluntary, right? Scott went himself to say this is he's like giving information. I think during that interview, he was like, shit, they think it's me. An interrogation only happens when you when they bring in a suspect themselves. You know what I mean, and and ask okay. them to come. Yeah. But so it wasn't an it was not an interrogative style, like you know where like good cop bad cop going at him. Scott was just freely like it's a, he's very he's like this is this is what I did all day. Yeah. But by by what's crazy is like you know in most investigations in a good investigation the last thing the police want is to give the public all the information because you completely undermine and compromise the investigation by doing that you always want to hold things back because that's how you know if somebody only somebody who actually committed the crime would know certain details right but they they actually announced they they put a picture of Scott's truck on yeah. this big old stand and said this was his truck did anybody see him go to the marina at this time 
Yeah. Now they announce this tip line and, you know, a reward. So people come out of the woodwork. Now, that morning on December 24th, this number varies depending on where you're researching. But around the area of 20 people said they most certainly saw somebody matching Lacey's description or some people definitely knew it was Lacey. Now, seeing a very pregnant woman walk a big dog, I mean, for all the women that have been very, very pregnant, you most certainly notice an extraordinarily pregnant woman with that pregnant waddle. You know, you know that it's like it's like you're you can't quite pinpoint the pain. You're in like a cacophony of discomfort. You know, your boobs hurt, your lower back hurt, your vagina hurts in places you didn't know you have. I'm all, all to say that it is something that you notice. Well, you know, the significance of these sightings, again, like a broader view of this is like, was Lacey Peterson killed on the night of the 23rd or was she still alive on the morning of the 24th? There is too much evidence, including dozens and dozens of unrelated witnesses who don't know one another, some of them who know Lacey by sight, some of them who don't know her at all. Who report 24 reported seeing her within a one mile radius. That's yeah. not a coincidence. That There's no yeah. way to explain that other than it had to have happened. And what people have to understand is if one of those people, just one, was right, that means yeah. she was alive on the morning of the 24th after Scott Peterson had left to go fishing and he could yeah. not have killed her. Like it's that significant. And it completely destroys the police theory, which is why the police didn't interview them. These people called over and over and over to report these sightings. So we're going to focus on four main witnesses. Now, when we explain, the, the and they're independent, they do not know each other. Right. These are all independent witnesses. It is going to be interesting because none of these people testified. Not only did not testify, the police just wouldn't even take an interview of them. Right. They didn't. A lot of them didn't get called back. We'll start with Homer Maldonado. So Homer and his wife were getting gas between 945 and 10 a.m. that morning of Christmas Eve. And he vividly remembers checking in his rearview mirror and seeing this, you know, adorable, extremely pregnant woman with the pregnant woman waddle, kind of not really controlling her dog. Now, the thing that he remembers noticing, again, that's our memories are triggered by things we notice. There's no explanation for why that happens. But he remembers noticing she wasn't wearing a sweater or a jacket. And I had sort of touched on this before. When people think of California, they think of, you know, Malibu and sunny beaches. But I keep jackets at my mom's house because you, if you don't like the weather in the Bay Area, wait five minutes. Mm. It, It is hot and then it's cold. It's like a Katy Perry song. But he remembers thinking, oh, look at that cute pregnant woman. Why isn't she wearing a jacket? And they kind of made this core memory of seeing her. Yeah. Keep this in mind. This area was on La Loma. This We're going to hear this, the name of this street several times from several independent witnesses. So I, uh, the weather on that morning was around 40 degrees. And so, you know, that again helps to kind of like verify. You know what I mean? Like when you're just trying to like check the facts of what a witness might be saying. It was about 40 degrees. It does make sense that the average person, but I also remember, look, I've been pregnant three times. And by that time, I am also very hot and uncomfortable. Like I am, there's a lot of extra stuff, body weight going on. And I can totally see at that point her saying the walk itself would warm me up. Um, and I'm Absolutely. I and I am also already hot and uncomfortable and I don't need a jacket. And it also makes sense that, you know, if you're going for a walk around the neighborhood 
I wouldn't take my purse, right? Obviously, I'm not going to take, like, maybe she just has her keys in her hand and, and, and the dog's leash and that's it. So it would explain what she left at home. Absolutely. And it's important to note, Homer called the tip line. He not only called the tip line, well, the tip line, nobody called him back. He went to the command post yeah. to to talk to them in person because nobody called. Make it make sense. Make this make sense. Don't you want to solve this crime? This man is saying, I can positively identify that I saw her. And they're like, eh, it's, it's fine. We, we're, we're good. We got our guy. You know, that's that's essentially what it's saying to me. They're like, none of these tips can be right because she wasn't alive then. Like they had already decided this. Yeah. And then you have like somebody like Martha Aguilar who lived two blocks from Lacey and knew Lacey and recognized Lacey. And so when she saw Lacey walking past her house, she's like, well, there goes Lacey. And literally, like, she knows the woman. And by that night, the whole world knew Lacey was missing. And there's police everywhere. And by the next morning, media circus has already begun. So this is not like like weeks have gone by and she's getting her memory mixed up. Well, I see Lacey walking every day. Maybe it was the day before the day after. No, there's every reason for her to know though that was that morning. And she actually called the police that day. And what the thing about Martha's sighting is that she, the street that she saw Lacey on was the same street that a different witness saw her on. Gene Pedrioli saw her on. Gene doesn't know Martha. He doesn't know Lacey, but he also like, was like, oh, I saw her on the same street. So now you have two witnesses that saying. That was La Loma. Oh, was that it, was La Loma? Was that La Loma? Was, yes. So they, they all saw all her on La Loma. What's the chances of that? At the same time, same time frame. Also something to note, Martha wasn't like, I saw a pregnant lady with a big dog. Martha was like, no, babe, I saw Lacey Peterson. She knows her. She knew her. They went to the same doctor. They were neighbors. Martha was, she was the one. Again, I mean, grab a chalice of wine and an edible. I don't judge because you're going to rage. Why was she never questioned? Never contacted. She she was never even called back. Neither was Pedrilli. He made two yeah. calls. He, they didn't call him back. Now, if you look at these sightings, there's 11 documentarians that actually went and followed up with interviews and verified. But if you take any combination of these and you try to like map out where the sightings were, it actually forms a pretty coherent route for her to have walked right. that makes sense. Right. And all of this matters because it means she had to have been alive. I mean, like it doesn't, there's no explanation that that, that otherwise suffices. Just in case you didn't feel like you could rage enough, Gene Pedrioli, the core memory thing for him was he noticed that he had a dog the same color. Again, it's just these little things we notice. Now, when he, he called the tip line twice and he was asked specifically to prove his whereabouts. Isn't that insane? Uh, How do you prove I was driving down the street? How? Yeah. In 2002. you're asking witnesses to prove that they're witnesses. It's yeah. like, I saw a crime. Yeah, prove it. And the witness, wait, am I in trouble? The witness is like, am I in trouble? Right. What's, are you mad at me? Right. I have to say, I-, I have seen some bad investigations and this really ranks up there. I mean, like all of these officers, I mean, like whoever was the, the, the leads on the, this case, they were just absolutely uh, egregious. Some of it was deliberate misconduct. Some of it was complete ineptness, but my God... And I got to talk about the one witness who I think is so, so important, who wasn't somebody who saw her on the walk, but he's somebody who's, be- him and his wife, and I'm talking about a man named Harshman, Tom Harshman and his wife, okay? Right, yes. And Elizabeth Harshman. So they were driving a, a couple of miles away from where Lacey disappeared that morning, or where we be- where she lived, let me put it like that, where she lived, depending on when you believe she disappeared, uh, between 2 and 4 p.m. So it's the afternoon, 
Okay. Now, this is very significant. He drives, yeah. uh, him and his wife see that this van pulled over. He describes it as kind of a white van or maybe tan. And it's got like a stripe. And the back doors are open. And there's a woman outside the van who is squatting, heavily pregnant woman who has short, dark brown hair, just like Lacey. She is squatting and urinating. And there's a man standing over her, like keeping watch of her, who he describes, him and his wife both describe him in pretty good detail. They're like, he's scruffy. He's about, I don't know, maybe yay feet tall they describe how tall he's um he's got a ponytail and a mustache he has a little bit of white hair and then as they're driving past like the whole scene looks really suspicious to to him that that same guy pulls her up puts her in the back of the van and as he's pulling her in the back of the van like kind of leading her to the back of the van another arm like reaches out and pulls her into the van he said the woman looked scared and he was so alarmed he looks up in the rear view and he's like what the hell is happening that that guy and it was a white guy he gets in his truck as a, he's a driver. Now, I have to say this. Okay. If you see oh, this. She, she's shifting in her chair. We're yeah. about to get something good. Here we go. If you see something like this happening and you don't even stop to get a Like, he makes calls to the police later. But how do you yeah. just drive past a scene like that and just keep going and not even stop? Not Don't follow the van. Don't get a license plate. I am. I really appreciate that he came forward and he tried over and he called the tip line twice, like two days later when he found out that there's this missing person. He's like, oh, my God, I think that was the same woman. And he and then he called and then all these weird stuff happened where they his name was like misspelled in the in the tip line file or whatever. And then he called again. I mean, like over and over he called. The point what I'm trying to make is like, I appreciate Mr. Harshman, like making the effort, but also People do not drive past a scene like that. Like, if I'm not saying engage with dangerous people. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a witness that sees this van, but that's not the only witness that day who reports seeing a suspicious van. And this is a very, very important detail in this case, the Medina burglary. Again, for people who know this case, we know that there was a burglary that took place across the street at the Medina home. Now, the Medinas were leaving for the holidays. They were leaving the morning of the 24th at, was it 1030? They were leaving at 1030 in the morning, yeah. the 24th, and they were going to come back the 26th. Now, why is this important? So, we know, fast forward, spoiler alert, two men, Stephen Wayne Todd and Donald Pierce, were arrested for this Medina burglary. And the reason that it's important is when they were arrested, which was January 2nd. Very shortly they, thereafter, yeah. Right. And, they, and they were said, definitely the people because they found the Medina, the police found the safe that the Medina's owned in their home. Yeah. <laughs> and some jewelry and like a weed eater. They really love gardening and fishing and stuff in Modesto. But now they interviewed the burglars and the the first thing they said, and this is documented, was we didn't have anything to do with that pregnant girl. Uh, wait, well, it, yeah. I, it's, it's just like a little kid that, that's like, oh, I didn't do it. You know, hold on. We're talking about this burglary that you said you committed. Oh yeah. But, uh, uh, we heard about that pregnant girl and we didn't have anything to do with her disappearance. So then these apparently burglars have a great powers of persuasion because they say, oh yeah, we did. Okay. So we burgled it and it was on the 26th. It wasn't on the 24th. That's what they say. Yeah. Right. And they and they said we did it the 26th. And the cops are like, great. That's when the burglary happened. You know, case closed. Yeah. Easy as that. Now, why is that impossible? Well, I mean, first of all, it's not like you can 
provide a receipt for the date of our burglary, right? Like, I mean, like, right. <laughs> but um, the Medias came back on the 26th. The house had been burgled already. But also by the 25th, there is a circus of media outside on that street. Like literally if they, somebody had burgled that house any point after the 20, the night of the 24th, the burglary would have been on camera for the world to watch live. Do yourself a favor. We're not talking now at the time. Remember technology was very different. So there wasn't just one guy with an iPhone. We're talking big, huge camera crews. We're talking dozens of people. Media vans, out. vans everywhere up and down the street. So you mean to tell me that they were so they were just sitting, you know, waiting for a glimpse of Scott, you know, waiting for their for their moment, for their shot, whatever. So you're meaning to tell me that these two Scooby-Doo rascals were like, you know what? This looks like the perfect house to rob with all those cameras (laughs) and recording devices. And they admitted that they put the safe smack dab in the middle of their lawn. Also, lie better. That doesn't make any sense. Just watch the footage. You'll see how close the houses are. There's no way to do this. You just can't do this with these cameras. There is physically no way. But the cops took these, you know, criminals' word for it rather than doing any kind of investigation or any kind of critical thinking and said, well, I mean, they they said it was the 26th. What can we do? You know? Well, a couple of other things I want to talk about in relation to this burglary. Number one is this. I want you guys to look up, just Google it, look up Peterson Medina burglary, and then look for images and look at one, the, the pictures of the people that they arrested and tell me how you would describe that guy. If not, uh, scruffy with a ponytail, mustache white. I mean, like he matches very closely to the description that the Har- Mr. and Mrs. Harshman gave of the people of the guy they saw with a pregnant woman urinating outside the van. Number one. Yep. Number two, they quickly had put, obviously when they're looking for where Lacey had gone, they got cadaver dogs and scent dogs. And there were dogs that went all the way into the neighborhood where these guys were apprehended from. I'm just saying, I'm not saying that these guys had something to do with it, although I believe they probably did. What I'm saying is that they had, the police had incredibly strong leads and suspects and they decided because they had, they're like, Scott's our guy to the exclusion of every other piece of evidence. They refuse to investigate those leads to the extent of now, not only that, there was a woman who was driving through the neighborhood named Diane Jackson. She reports this immediately, like that same evening that she had been driving past the house. She literally saw the burglars outside the house yeah. around like 1130 or so. And they're loading up the, they're just like looking at her, you know, like as they've got the van doors open. And she said she was freaked out because as she's driving past, all three, like three men turned and looked at her right in the face. Like, they're, you know what I mean? And that can be kind of intimidating. And so she remembered it very clearly. And they're parked outside the Medina house. She knew the Medinas. She also knew they were traveling. Yeah. And she's yeah. like, wait, who the hell are these people? Yeah. Now, that, to me, like, if 1130 is around the time Lacey would have been getting back, around that time. And if she yeah. ran into those people, that explains how she could have easily disappeared into that van and been the same woman a few hours later seen urinating yeah. a few miles away. I mean, it just, it has to infuriate you. Now, if you walked into this podcast thinking, you know, Scott is 100% guilty, I would love someone to, you know, make this make sense. So before we get to one of my favorite things <laughs> that I know Ravia is going to say, also just just piggybacking off the idea of the cops making this timeline and and making this narrative what they wanted, you know, on January 15th, 
the Modesto police met with Lacey's family. They told the parents about Amber Fry. We will get to that. And they also said that Scott had taken out a quarter of a million dollar life insurance policy just a handful of months ago. They also said there was blood evidence that Scott had killed Lacey. Now, the interesting thing about all of those statements, except for the Amber Fry part, none of them were true. Right. They were trying to get Sharon and Ron in line with their story. Somebody please knock some sense into me. And and if, if, and if you think I'm wrong, make it make sense. I mean, you know, the family over and over in all these press conferences and media appearances um, said that they stood by Scott. They believe Scott. Yep. And, you know, they were all on the same page and Scott was worried for his wife and the police needed the family to turn against him. And so nothing could be more powerful, I think, for them than the Amber Fry evidence. I mean, that would turn most people against, right? Like, you know, somebody in that situation thinking he was cheating on my daughter, cheating on my right. sister, right? And and the police didn't just tell them. they All the stuff about the insurance and the blood, they leaked it to the media over and uh, There wasn't and a wasn't moment. True. None of it was true. But once it's out there, good luck yeah. stopping that train. Good luck. Absolutely. So... Do you want to talk about Amber Fry? I know everybody wants to talk about Amber Fry. And yeah. Amber Fry, I here's the thing, I do not. Because Amber Fry is completely irrelevant to the facts of this murder. Amber Fry hasn't unless Amber Fry was spotted on La Loma Avenue or had something to do with being in that neighborhood, had something to do with the actual murder of the facts of that case of where Lacey was or where Scott was, connected to the forensic evidence. No. She is not relevant to the to investigating what happened to Lacey Peterson, period. She you, really isn't. So, Robbie, we were chatting about this offline, and Robbie has said that, and I went, oh, you're so right. Yeah. You're so you're so right and wise. Listen, here's the deal. Scott cheated. I mean, here's a novel idea for everyone. You know, open up the notes section of your phone and grab a pen and paper. How about you don't cheat? If you have the audacity to cheat on Beyonce, right. like, I mean, anybody can be cheated on. Right. Love is scary. We've been there. Being We've both been there. Let's put it out we there. Have, We've been there. We have both been there. Now, yeah. Beyonce has been crazy in love, dangerously in love, <laughs> drunken in love. And, and angry in love. <laughs> it's out here being challenging for Beyonce. It's pretty rough for us all, I would think. But this is all to say you're completely right. The fact that Scott couldn't keep his eggplant emoji in his pants actually has nothing to do with the mm -hmm. murder of Lacey and Connor. He was a pig. We can all agree on that. Maybe he was a narcissist. Maybe he was a sociopath. I don't think he was any of those things. I, he was just a d dumb, weak man. And I and listen, if, if every dumb, weak man or woman who cheats on their partner, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, had a motive for murder, many of us would be dead right now. Like most of us would be dead. Like nobody would be left. If you're the partner of somebody who disappears and is later found killed, 100% you're going to be a suspect. If you were cheating on them when that happened, 100% you're getting convicted because this is the kind of stuff that pisses juries off. And when the trial went on, I mean, they were pretty much like not believing the prosecution's case until Amber Fry testified. And then everything about that made them think he is a cold-blooded POS. I'm not saying he's not. I'm saying that he, I think he was just a dumb guy. And the idea that, you know, what the state was saying was that he didn't want a baby and he wanted to be with Amber. Amber had a kid. Yeah. She was already a single mom. And he was not in love with Amber. He had hooked up with her a few times. They had just met like weeks 
prior, weeks prior to this, okay? Yeah, he's just being a basic, disgusting man. It is a trope we've seen a million times. Yeah, and it wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time he had cheated. He had cheated before. This was a, a marital issue, I'm saying, but I do not give a flying fuck about Amber Fry when it comes to the facts of who murdered Lacey Peterson because it hasn't, unless afterwards, after the murder, you're gonna, you know, he's talking to Amber and he confesses to her, then maybe there's some evidentiary value to like you know, what she has to say. There was nothing she said, as far as I'm concerned, that had any evidentiary value about what happened on December 24th. All I care about is what happened on the night of the 23rd and on the 24th. That's it. You could not be more right. So let's talk about April 13th, 2003. April 13th and 14th, two bodies are found in the San Francisco Bay. The body of baby Connor, which was the name that they had chosen for their unborn son, the Petersons, and the body of Lacey Peterson. And this is like, I'm going to get into some of the forensics here because I know it might be a little bit morbid, but here's the thing. This is evidence. Yeah, these things are hard to hear, but they're necessary. Autopsies are can provide evidence as to what happened to that person. It's really, really important to look into them. And I will, I'll start with Connor. Connor, at the time that Lacey disappeared, was 31 weeks gestational age. Was his like you know like you know at, you know do you remember those that period like in the beginning of pregnancy you don't get checkups that often. Last month like you're there every week. Oh yeah, you're there every week. The receptionists know you by first name. Yeah, so they had a pretty firm grasp on like how big Connor would have been. Connor was found in pretty good condition. He was described as every medical person around who had handled him as a a newborn baby, not as a fetus. Like he was a grown, like he was bigger than just like an eight-month baby. And when they measured him, the forensic pathologist actually said that his gestational age when he died was between 34 and 36 weeks. I mean, that means that he would have, on the day she disappeared to the day that he died, which, you know, that he couldn't have died on the 24th or the 23rd. He lived at least three more weeks after that, right? Yeah, and those are the facts. There are so many things about this case that consume me, and a lot of it just comes down to the question of what if? What if he was actually born because the science doesn't lie. He couldn't have died and then grown another, like, you know what I mean? Like three weeks of gestational age, that wouldn't have happened. Another really important fact about the autopsy is like his condition. Now, I didn't know this until I started doing research, but you know, many women have, have suffered like fetal death or miscarriages and stuff. And uh, when a when a fetus dies in utero, the condition of that fetus will change depending on how long it stays inside the mother's body. The longer it stays inside a mother's body before being expelled, right, delivered somehow naturally, just expelled naturally, the longer it stays, the more mummified it gets, okay? Oh, now, wow. the police theory is that Connor died the night that, you know, Lacey was killed on the 23rd. Their bodies were disposed of the next day in the bay, and for three and a half months, they floated around until they found them. That meant if Connor stayed in utero that long, because he's in good condition. Okay. Right. So he, he cannot be, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that he was, he had already been expelled. And so he wasn't mummified because then he would be very decomposed from the water. Right. Right. So either he has to be in utero for much of that time that they can't find the bodies. Okay. And then he's put in the water because if he had been in utero for three and a half months or even two months. After two weeks, the baby starts to mummify and he had no mummification. That is fascinating. 
The one thing I have to say of diving into this case, of which I thought I knew everything, is learning different things like that. And I do know that the forensic pathologist, Brian Peterson, which, LOL, the name, everyone just changed their name who has the last name Peterson. It's cursed in some way. He said on the stand when he testified that he could not rule out live birth. And that mummification fact, I never knew. Textbook forensic pathology when it comes to like like in utero death shows that over and over. You can go online, you can see pictures of babies who've died in utero. And once they're delivered, what they look like, depending on how long they stayed in utero after death, the longer they stay after two, three weeks, they start to mummify. And we know what mummification looks like. I mean, we just kind of know that. So clearly Connor could not have been like in utero for three months and then been expelled, but he also couldn't have been in the water for three months. I mean, like both things can't be true. The only way that makes sense is that Lacey remained alive. He continued to grow and they were actually killed probably shortly before, like, you know, their bodies were found. And another thing, and this is such a, like, terrible fact, but, like, there was this twine that was wrapped around the baby. The state says that when he was floating around the water, this twine got, like, accidentally wrapped around him, except that the twine was not knotted around his neck oh, twice yeah. in a loop that was so tight it could not have slipped over his head. It was a knot and a bow. It had to be hand tied around his neck. Otherwise, it couldn't. It just, it wouldn't slip over his head and end up in a double knotted loop. Like there's no way to explain that. And there was that piece of tape that was adhered to his ear. Remember that? And if he had been in the water for three months, I feel like that tape would have lost its adhesiveness. Is that a word? If it's not, I just made it up and we need to call Miriam Webster. And Lacey's autopsy is actually just so horrifying because they found her, they found a torso and they had to identify her using other means. And the way in which they found their torso was that her head was missing. Both arms were missing at the elbow down. One leg was missing at the knee down. And on the other leg, the foot was missing, but also every single, every single organ of hers was missing except for a part of her uterus. Every single, explain that to me. Okay. That's not how bodies in water are found. The state argued that, you know, like when uh, somebody's buried and like 20 years later, you dig up a skeleton, like the head kind of has fallen off. That's not what we're talking about. Like these things did not just fall off of her. Her head didn't just fall right off her body. Also, she's missing her neck. Like seven, you know what I mean? Like that's what happens when somebody actually decapitates somebody. And her organs missing, to me, that sounds very much like maybe there is actually an entire, like, terrifying dark industry of, like, organ farming and harvesting. Oh, my stars. We did a really disturbing episode on that show, Love, Honor, Betray, about organ harvesting, or some people know it better as organ trafficking. It is revoltingly lucrative. And it seems so dark and twisted that people might think it's not real. It's almost beyond understanding. And it is very real, very scary, and very nauseating. Yeah. The top of her uterus was missing. The rest was there. And a couple of experts who looked at that said that, you know, that could suggest that what could have happened is that somebody tried, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, cut her across the top of her belly to like a C-section to try to deliver the baby. And by doing that, inadvertently cut off the top of her uterus. There's, there's so, I mean, there's, I'm not, I'm only talking about some of like the, the more significant facts of the autopsy. Believe me, when you get into it, so many more things. Her shoulder blade, one of her shoulder blades had a puncture hole in it. Now she's not walking around alive like that. That happened after death. 
but it's the kind of hole that usually only happens like when like if a dog or coyote or some kind of animal punctures it with a like after biting like a, a deceased person or anyhow i mean she had broken ribs like she had been kicked in the ribs and they they were broken. I mean, going along the lines that there were so many facts that we didn't hear about, we don't know about. Another interesting thing I found, she had caffeine in her system. Oh, now, I didn't know something that. to note was that Lacey only had one fallopian tube. So conceiving was really challenging for them. So the family had attested that Lacey took being pregnant very seriously. You know, when you're pregnant with your first, I know you've had three, I've only had one, but you read all the blogs and the do's and the don'ts and what to expect when you're expecting. And one of the main things is to stay away from caffeine. So she wasn't drinking coffee. Why was there caffeine in her system? Yeah, we didn't. I didn't drink coffee like at that point. Right. You're right. I yeah. mean, yeah, I was so strict. I did whatever they told yeah. me. I didn't drink, obviously. I didn't eat deli meat. I mean, I'm sure after throwing a couple babies out, you're like, I mean, good luck, kid. Mama needs her <laughs> wine. But I have to say that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this case and one of the reasons it's like stuck with me for so long, because it not only has all the all the problematic elements of things that go wrong in the criminal justice system and how we like how we end up with innocent people in prison. It also has all the elements of all the toxicity that occurs in true crime that is problematic, including people like the Nancy Graces who rile up mobs. My God, that woman. You want to do a podcast? I will do a 30-part podcast on Nancy Grace. Oh, Nancy Grace. Don't get me started on Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace is the president of an MLM, but she's not selling leggings. She's selling trauma. She has people who listen to her because she says every 13 seconds how she's a prosecutor. Every time I see her face, I just have this urge to grow. Grab the nearest thing and smash it against a wall. Her arrogance is unfounded. I swear she buys her audacity in bulk at Costco. I could do a 23-part series about how I think Nancy Grace absolutely contributed to this conviction. I mean, I don't like using that term Karen, but... Nancy Grace asks to speak to the manager, and then she also does a three-hour TV special about the manager. She is toxic. But here's the bad news about Nancy Grace. It works. It works. Because look at you and I, across the country from each other, buying into this story, screaming for Scott Peterson's head. So it works. We were part of the mob. The day they arrested him, if you watch the footage of when they arrested Scott Peterson after they found the body and they brought him to the courthouse, he had already been convicted. I mean, like, there was a mob outside. They were yelling, screaming for his murder, saying, you should hang. You should. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. It's horrifying. And I think about now, with my struggle with, uh, with the Adnan Sayed case, it's been like 23, 24 years, trying to get people to say, to separate, like, the bullshit noise from actual facts is so hard. And I can't imagine what his family was going through and he was going through at the time. Because it's not like everything we've talked about today was evidence that existed at the time. This is not like new evidence. Nope. Okay. This is all evidence that existed at the time. And, and there's lots of things we haven't talked about, like the mailman and what time he was at the house. So much more there. And they had been trying to cut through the lies the media were telling. And it wasn't working because the police were just feeding it. And I, I want to personally say, Say, I gotta say, I gotta get this out. I want to apologize to Scott Peterson and his family for being one of those people with zero critical thinking skills sure. and just buying the shit that was being fed to me. And I want to say, I would be happy to work with 
anybody on his team to help exonerate him because I 100% don't think he belongs in prison. Yeah. And that is the crux of why we're here. Scott Peterson wasn't convicted by actual evidence that he committed these murders, but by the absence of evidence that someone else did. It's guilt by default. Scott Peterson is guilty of lying and cheating. That's not a crime. I'm a lawyer. I know these things. If I keep saying that, people are going to actually think I'm a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But... Also, his shitty and weird demeanor. Demeanor evidence isn't a thing. It's just something that we use to cast judgment on someone, right? I mean, we accepted. I mean, I don't know how he did it. I don't know when he did it. I just know he did it. And we were like, yeah, burn him at the stake. But here's the thing. The person or people who did this is out there. That's not justice. If Scott Peterson didn't do it and he's in jail, I mean, you and I both think that he didn't. And remember, I was right there with you cheering his conviction. Yeah, rotten jail, baby killer, murderer. But it's all very sad because in our right mind, we think bad guys go to jail. That's where they belong. But time and time again, we've come to learn that that's not the case. And people just want someone to serve time for a gruesome murder. Somebody must be held accountable. But we know that a narrative can be spun to make that be anything. The law is gray. The law is finicky. And it can be open to interpretation. And it can have ambiguities. Insert lawyer joke here. I mean, between Nancy Grace crucifying him in the media, the Modesto police and their utter incompetence, not to mention Brokini's lies. I mean, we know that he lied. There is no way that he should have been convicted. Oh, they orchestrated it. I'm going to say another thing right now. There are people, this is not the work of one person. Whoever kidnapped her, killed her, delivered the space, like, did you know, disposed of the body because, oh, hey, where should we get rid of the body? Maybe where the police are saying the husband was because we're going to, I mean, they literally were like, the police had like drew a red arrow, dump her here so we can nail him. Yeah, and, exactly. We're yeah. going to tell you where he was. So yeah. if you feel like you want to drop the body here, that is where he was. So have at it. And let's not forget the searches we talked about, 28 searches, hundreds and hundreds of people. I just want to like quickly say like they had searched that place in excess of 200 sonar searches. They had the FBI, the Navy, the Coast Guard, agencies from four different counties, dogs trained to smell the surface of the water for gases, a robotic vehicle, helicopters. They did all these searches in that same body of water, found nothing. And then three and a half months later, those bodies show up. Those were not there on the 24th. They just weren't. Yeah, I just want to get a tattoo on my forehead that says, make it make sense. Before we recorded, I went live on TikTok and I wanted to just get some feedback from people. So I said, tell me why Scott Peterson is guilty. And I didn't explain to people why I was asking, but I just sort of started this conversation. And people chimed in and said, well, you know, he was talking to Amber Fry at that vigil. And I was like, I know that was pretty gross. And then someone said, well, he, you know, he was having an affair. And I was like, yeah, he, he invented a new thing, a man cheating on his wife. And then someone said, well, you know, he was 30 miles from the Mexican border. And I was like, yeah, where he grew up in San Diego, which was 30 miles from the Mexican border. But nobody had anything beyond these talking points, these clickbait headlines of what we were all fed at the time. 
Thank you, goddamn Nancy Grace, for putting it out there that he was trying to run to Mexico. I mean, she's the one who kept saying that. I would fight her, man. I would fight her so oh, hard. Oh, Robbie, I would put my money on you any day. <laughs> Nancy Grace is a scumbag. Her special skills on her resume say, like, being loud, being obnoxious as hell, starting witch hunts, and exploiting victims for money and ratings. Congrats, Nancy Grace. You're a shit wagon. Yeah. Let's wrap up by talking about what's going on today. He does have an appeal right now that's pending, and... And as of when this podcast will air, like literally within like six weeks of it airing, a judge is supposed to rule on whether he'll get a new trial. It is a, it's not an appeal that asks for, it. Just, it's an appeal that's kind of a technical issue about around juror misconduct and ineffective in assistance of counsel for not pointing out the juror misconduct. So it's not like, it's not a writ of innocence, frankly. It would afford him a new trial. And I 100% believe if he had a new trial, he would win this new trial. And that's why the state will fight it. And they are fighting it. They don't want him to have a new trial. So we'll know in about November whether or not to, he gets that new trial. He is nearly 50 years old now. And it's really hard. It's terrible to watch him. Yeah. He was sentenced to death, but then it was commuted to life instead. But, you know, life sentences are also death sentences, folks. Let's not kid ourselves. So as we wrap up, I do want to say it has been interesting to see the evolution of true crime and how it obviously compares to 20 years ago. I mean, we have so much more information readily available at our fingertips. Thank you so much, World Wide Web. But there is a wave of people trying to gain a deeper understanding of facts and evidence, myself included, and not just making emotional and rash decisions. You know, 20 years ago, you and I thought this man deserved to spend the rest of his life behind bars. And fry. I mean, I was like, yeah, hang. I mean, like, you know, death penalty all the way. I mean, yeah, all the way. I think the more that we talk about these things, the more the average person, I am the average person, I'm not a lawyer, can understand how we contribute because we did contribute to this case. It's important that people listen to people like you who know the facts and consume materials like Undisclosed that talk about fact. And, you know, me who sits on Google all night, I do have a degree from Google. It's just really beneficial to take the media for what it's worth. And if you're interested in something, dive in and research. I have learned so much by re-examining this case. I mean, we know a lot of innocent people who have been convicted and they were victim not to some conspiracy, but maybe victim to some guesswork, some lazy investigation work. I know I'm going to get shit for that, but I get it. Being in law enforcement, your whole life revolves around finding the bad guy. Or I mean, we hope. And when you've worked hard, seemingly, at something and you think you're right and you're not... People don't really like to be wrong. I mean, don't get me started on Brokiti. He didn't even know that Ron Gransky had gone fishing on the 24th until Ron testified at trial. How do you not know where the family was that day? Okay, I'm, I'm getting off topic. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, look. In Scott's case, there's no way he's going to get a jury that's that's unbiased. It, it was too polluted. Our audience is a pool of prospective jury members, right? Like the jury is, uh, juries are going to come from people who are listening to this show. And I want you to know that when there is no forensic evidence and all the evidence against a person is a motive evidence or demeanor evidence, that's not real evidence. That is circumstantial. And that to me does not rise beyond a reasonable doubt. Period. Right. If demeanor evidence were a thing, I would be convicted every time. I have ADHD and I act inexplicably weird sometimes. But, Rabia, the title of our show is Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. So did we solve it? 
I think we saw that Scott Peterson is innocent. And I think Lacey, the people who killed Lacey are still out there and somebody knows something. And you know what? That's That evidence can still come forward. I do believe that. So tell us what you think. Are we wrong? Are we wrong? No, I just really want to know if we changed people's minds or what they still think. No, we're not wrong. No, we aren't. Listen, convince me. Convince me. Well, this is a talk show. This is an open, continuing dialogue. My mind has changed over the years. I get it. People don't like to be wrong. As humans, we have like an irrational need to be right and perfect. I'm in therapy. Don't worry. But we have presented you with some facts maybe that you didn't know before. And we told you our thoughts on it. If you have something that we've overlooked or you want to prove us wrong, we would love that because we all have the same goal. And that is for justice to be served. So please join the conversation. You can find us on all platforms, Rabia and Ellen. That is all spelled out, Robbie and Ellen. And don't forget that Ellen spells her name with a Y. Thank you, Mom. That has caused me no end of trouble over the years. So you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Robbie and Ellen. And we are going to go live on Instagram every other Thursday at noon to talk about the case from the week before, answer your questions, and, you know, just chit-chat with you guys. So we'll give you a week to mull it over, to think of some questions that you might have or something that we might have overlooked or something that you want us to hear. We love connecting with you. So please join us for that. And you can find me at Ellen Marsh on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Ellen Marie Marsh on TikTok. And where can they find you, Rabia? I am on Twitter at Rabia Squared. That's spelled out. And then I'm on Instagram at Rabia Squared with the number two, Rabia Squared two. Thank you so much for listening to our first official episode of Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. Remember, every other Thursday, we will sit down with our guests and we'll just have a conversation about a case they're obsessed with. Maybe we'll bring some new facts to light, something that you hadn't heard before. So if there's a case you want us to cover, please connect with us on social media. We'd love to hear what cases you would like us to talk about. We're so excited to build this new community with us. So please subscribe and tell your friends about us so that we can keep the conversation going. Thank you. I love you, Ellen. I love you guys. Love you, listeners. Love you, Rabia, queen of all the things, including but not limited to perfect lips and skin. I feel like we should be doing a beauty hack podcast. Anyway, maybe one day. Bye, Rabia. Bye-bye.